Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 105, Cressy. Now, I can feel a sense of panic coming back at me over the podcasting airwaves. We appear to be slowing to a crawl. So what? Are we going to take two years to get to the end of the Hundred Years' War? Well, hopefully not. As I keep reminding you all, I'm not a historian, just a bloke in a shed, so I'm allowed to indulge my personal predilections, or the legal ones anyway, and spend loads and loads of time on glorious English victories. I think we can count on the fact that I shall spend substantially less time when it comes to the glorious French victories. So we'll catch up a little bit later. Now, before we get to the Cressy campaign, a little backing up is required. We've heard the success of Lancaster, but what of Brittany? Command had been handed to William Bohoon, the Earl of Northampton, and everything had started really well with the recapture of the Channel Islands. The trouble is that while Bohoon was an excellent commander, Montford, the Duke of Brittany, was with him and had to be seen to be in command, and sadly he wasn't so great. Plus, Northampton's army was good, but very, very small. All in all, then, 1345 was not a vintage year in Brittany, and by September... Montford was dead, and Charles of Blois was sitting pretty. The response from the English was a winter campaign in 1345-6, led by one Thomas Dagworth. Here is another chapter in our continuing story of Edward III's great captains. In common with many of the Englishmen who made their names and fortunes in the Hundred Years' War, Dagworth didn't come out of the top drawer of English nobility. He was the second son of a minor lord, paying homage to the Bohun family. 
And then, in 1344, a man described by the chroniclers as elegant made his big breakthrough in the traditional medieval idiom by marrying well. In this case, marrying into the Bahoon family. Dagworth was to prove his worth in a military career that was as successful as it was unfortunately short. In 1346, therefore, Dagworth resolved to concentrate on capturing port towns in the north of Brittany, which was a stronghold of the Blois faction, and would also make communication with England that much easier than the southern ports that they currently held. And with the fall of the little port of La Roche-Darenne, the objective was partly completed. But any benefit seemed to have been lost as during the summer of 1346, Charles of Blois gathered a substantial army and swept across the duchy. The English had received no reinforcements for some time, and however elegant Dagworth might be, as far as the Breton nobles were concerned, they looked like a bit of a lost cause. And so the sound of awkward shuffling of mailed feet echoed across the peninsula, as Breton nobles suddenly turned out to have loved Bois all along, and turned up in his army. This, the greatest challenge so far to the English cause in Brittany, came to head at one quite remarkable battle. Dagworth was doing his best to keep up morale, touring the English garrisons with his pitifully titchy force of 80 men-at-arms and 100 archers, when shortly after dawn on the 6th of June 1346, he was surprised by Charles's main army of about 3,500 at a place called Saint-Paul-de-Léon. Dagworth and his men were understandably upset to see them, but nonetheless... Running away was not the Dagworth way. So they legged it to the top of the nearest hill, dug themselves in and prepared to fight. Now Bois had little doubt that 20 to 1 constituted a winning advantage and he attacked. The first wave was led by a Picard knight so confident that he promised to bring Dagworth back trussed up into the French camp. But instead, wave after wave came on and the English often attacked on three sides beat every one of them off. After the experience of the Battle of Morlaix, Charles was beginning to understand the problems of attacking the English in defensive positions. And so he shrugged his shoulders in as nonchalant way as possible, made it known that I didn't want that hill anyway, and took his army off in the opposite direction. The roll call at the end of the battle showed that every English man-at-arms had survived, but all were injured. In his report to the king, Dagworth wrote, I commend my troops to you. You will not find better men in all your realm. And meanwhile, Foissart wrote of Dagworth, No man-at-arms ever accomplished such a fine feat. At one level, the result was the end of that year's French offensive, with no result for them despite the size of their forces. But on another, there was this gradually building concept that the English just couldn't be beaten and for a kingdom like France that saw itself as the apogee of Christian civilization, this was something of a negative. In the southwest, Lancaster's victories caused a domino effect of panic in the Agenais, the area to the east of Gascony. It's an area that had been disputed for a long time between the French and English, and was continually changing hands. Communities that had defected to the French when they seemed to be in the ascendant now swapped back again. And that's the way it worked. Loyalty could be expensive and painful. Much better to see which way the wind was blowing and set the cut of your jib accordingly. This is great when you're on the way up, as the English were now. 
but it would bite them on the bum on the way down. There's an illuminating story between one set of townspeople and their French garrison commander. The townsman seized this loyal son of France and threw him into jail, demanding that, quote, You shall use your authority to go out and treat with the Earl of Derby and the English so that we can live in peace. For many, the claims of kings and queens would come and go. All they wanted was to be left alone and avoid being pillaged. Now, one of these places was the town of Aiguillon. Aiguillon was strategically important, sitting within the Agenais at a point where the Lot and the Garonne rivers met, so vital for river traffic and the proud possessor of a key bridge. When the Seneschal Ralph Stafford appeared before the walls, the townsfolk fell on the garrison, chucked them all in jail and opened the gates. Welcome, they said. We've always loved the English, really. What were we thinking with those French guys? The French response was to gather the largest army they'd ever developed in the southwest, under the command of the Duke of Normandy, an army of possibly up to 20,000 men. Philip had gone to great lengths to make sure that the war finance was available, and of course there was always the French Pope, who helpfully loaned some money to help French commanders as well, all of which did nothing to help the concept of even-handedness. The Duke of Normandy took his army and went to recapture Aiguillon, determined to demonstrate that all those people who had changed allegiance had done the wrong thing. Although the English couldn't fight an army of that size, they could and did make sure Aiguillon was good and ready. Inside Aiguillon, Walter Manny and Ralph Stafford were well supplied and had plenty of soldiers. And as we've seen, where this is the case, before the age of cannon, castles were hideously difficult to capture and so poor old Jean, Duke of Normandy, was to sit in front of Aiguillon all the way through the summer, achieving nothing, tying down his resources for absolutely no gain whatsoever. In England, Edward prepared for his own great invasion, with vast accumulations of stores and weapons. Enormous efforts were made to assemble a fleet, but as ever, the date of departure slipped and slipped, from March 1346 to May. London and the south coast were buzzing with men, supplies, ships and French spies. But hard as they tried, those spies couldn't find out the destination of the invasion. Which of the three theatres was Edward going to? Was it Normandy, Brittany or Gascony? The French seemed to have decided at some point that it was going to be Brittany or Gascony. And it seems likely that for a long time Edward did indeed himself favour the south-west. But sitting next to the king was a French rebel, a man called Godfrey de Harcourt, who was consistently bending Edward's ear. Before he rebelled, Godfrey's lands had lain in Normandy, specifically the Cotentin Peninsula in the west of the dukedom. And so Godfrey had a vested interest in getting an invasion to go there, a chance to settle some old scores and maybe get his lands back. In Froissart, Godfrey says... The country of Normandy is one of the most plenteous countries in the world. Sire, in jeopardy of my head, if you will land there, there is none shall resist you. The people of Normandy have so far had no experience of war, and all the chivalry of France is gathered outside Aiguillon with the Duke. And, sire, there you will find great towns without walls, where your men shall have riches to last them twenty years. Now, Edward bought this argument but managed to keep the fact secret. 
that in fact Edward added a further dimension to his plans that worked wonderfully well in distracting the French by involving Flanders. So in Ghent, in Flanders, the situation had seemingly taken a turn for the worse in 1345 for the English cause. Ghent had increasingly chafed under Artevelde's autocratic rule. Many others in Flanders outside the three cities of Ghent, Bruges and Ypres wanted their count back anyway with the French alliance, and so an end to the English alliance. And then in July 1345, Artevelde was attacked by an angry mob and beaten to death. But over the next few months, it became clear that the three towns still wanted to maintain their English alliance. They just wanted to do it without having Jacob there. This meant that in 1346, Edward was able to send a man called Hugh of Hastings with a very small English company to Flanders. He made no secret of the destination. Everyone knew he was going, including the French. And as a result, Philip would always have one eye on Flanders. And in June, as Hugh packed his bags, Ghent agreed to help Edward as much as he needed and put an army in the field. Needless to say, though, the English departure had yet again been delayed. And in June, suddenly some information seemed to have reached the French. Because they recalled the constable from the army at Aiguillon and sent the Count of Flanders to join him at Harfleur. Philip, meanwhile, redoubled his efforts to persuade the Scots to invade. And David II was keen... But so far, his activities have been restricted to short-term raids. Philip needed more. He needed a big one. And his desperation comes out of his letters, just like this one. I beg you, I implore you with all the force I can to remember the bonds of blood and friendship between us. Do for me what I would willingly do for you in such a crisis, and do it as quickly as you are able. Finally, on the 11th of July, 1346, Edward and his army set off from Portsmouth and arrived a day later in Normandy at a place called Saint-Vast, on the Cotentin Peninsula. The Earl of Warwick quickly cleared away any local forces, which were very few anyway. Now the army Edward had assembled was probably around 15,000 strong, and at its core were the heavily armoured and mounted men-at-arms. A significant number would have been mounted archers and hobbilars, i.e. light cavalry, probably about 3,000 of them. Then there would have been the foot archers, and the rest, Welsh spearmen, and other levies and light infantry. There is the good old traditional story about Edward falling over as he got off the ship, just like Billy the Conk the other way around. And really you would think these commander types would take a bit more care. Lord knows what the health and safety officer was thinking. But anyway, with blood gushing from his nose, Edward cheerfully noted how keen France was to welcome him, Everybody laughed, and off they went. As soon as the landing was completed, Edward went to a nearby hill and knighted his 16-year-old son Edward and the son of his dead friend William Montague. And then they marched. By the way, everyone, there is another of my daring and inspired animated maps where you can follow all the movements of the armies on the website, thehistoryofengland.com. Your cup runneth over. The French commander was Robert Bertrand, who fell back before the English desperately trying to raise enough men to fight and resist. All around him, the English burned the local towns and refugees filled the roads south. Along the coast, the English fleet filled their boots with plunder until lumbering back home when they could carry no more. And in Paris, 
Philip had no army to oppose the English. Plus, he was worried about the Flemish, so the plan was to call out the levies to gather at Amiens in the north against Hastings and the Flemish. And then, by time, with a resolute defence of Caen against Edward, meanwhile raising another army in Rouen in Normandy, and get that clot, the Duke of Normandy, back from Aiguille. The Count of Ur was therefore sent to Caen. Philip went to Saint-Denis to take the Oriflamme on the 22nd of July. Back in Scotland, the defences of the north were in some disarray and the Scots smelled blood, but nonetheless a truce had been agreed until September, and so David started planning. Robert Bertrand's retreat essentially didn't stop until he reached Caen. At one point it looked as though he might try to hold the line at the river town of Saint-Lô, but at the last moment he abandoned the idea, and thereby abandoned the inhabitants to sack by the English. There are plenty of examples of Edward trying to stop the ruthless pillaging of the countryside, but it's equally clear that his ability to control his troops in this regard was limited. And so the army paused ten miles out of Caen and demanded its surrender. But the Count of Ur and the men of Caen had no intention of doing so whatsoever. It was their role to hold up the English king while his army wasted its strength on their walls, and their king then came up and gave the English the kicking they royally deserved. But unfortunately, as soon as the English appeared, on the 26th of July outside their walls, they panicked. They changed their plans, decided to defend one of the suburbs as well. The result was chaos. And meanwhile, an uncontrolled English attack started straight away, and the Earl of Warwick quickly seized a gate on the western side of the town. Actually, at this point, Edward tried to recall his army, but he was ignored. It was too late. And all along the river, the water levels were low and the French defence failed as English archers waded across, firing as they went. And within a few hours, Caen had fallen and was given over to plunder while the remaining French watched from the castle. The French plan had failed. Nonetheless, Edward waited five days before he moved off across Normandy towards Rouen, burning a swathe of territory as he went to feed his army. At this stage, it's probable that Edward actually wanted a battle to force the issue. But equally clearly, he'd much prefer to fight on equal terms. And ahead of him, the French army gathered in Rouen was now substantial, so if possible, he'd like to join up with Hastings and the Flemish. But to get to them, either Hastings had to come south, or he had to cross two rivers to his north, first the Seine, on which sat Rouen and Paris, of course, and further north the Somme. Getting across rivers with an army of 10,000 men plus and a load of carts wasn't trivial. And this was to become the major factor in the campaign. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ahead of him, Philip dithered. At one point he took his army to Rouen, crossed the Seine, and marched forward to meet Edward's advancing army. But then the French changed their plans, and they decided instead they would stop the English crossing the Seine. And back they went over the river. But actually, by this stage, Edward was beginning to get a little desperate. He had to find a way across the river Seine. He didn't have sufficient men to take Paris. If he couldn't cross the Seine... He would be forced to retreat back into Normandy. His great offensive would once again end with no gain, and he couldn't afford for this to happen. And time after time, every river crossing proved impassable. At Pont de l'Arche, they tried to rush to the walls of the town, but over the river they saw the French army arrive and knew that even if they did, they couldn't force the bridge in the face of that number of men. So they kept on going. They burned their way upstream, and at Vernon, The next crossing they found the same. It was impregnable. Next at Mantes, several thousand soldiers were drawn up under the walls, and the English moved on. At Merlon, the next crossing, Warwick and William Bohoom rode to investigate the bridge, only to find that this time it had been destroyed, and a French force was on the northern bank, yelling abuse at them as they approached. They tried an assault, but they were beaten off, and the French soldiers stood at the edge of the water laughing and bearing their buttocks. So by the 12th of August, Edward was within 20 miles of Paris. Ahead across the bends of the river he could see her towers, and between were the various hunting lodges of the French kings, Marly, Poissy, Saint-Cloud, Saint-Germain. In Paris there was panic and chaos, with barricades and makeshift defences springing up all over the place. The pressure on Philip, of course, was immense. His job was to protect, so why wasn't he protecting? Already the English had invaded France with apparently no consequence, and now he was here again. The chronicler at Saint-Denis wrote, It was not only discreditable, but plain treason, that all the nobility of France could not boot out the King of England. Instead, left him to take his ease in the palaces of the King of France drinking his wine and smashing his property as he pleased. Maybe Paris would have panicked less if it had understood the problems that faced Edward. Making contact with the Flemish was now looking even more important than ever, because the French army now seems to have been between 8,000 men-at-arms, 6,000 Genoese, plus a mass of local levies. So Edward was now heavily outnumbered. But now the English had a stroke of luck. They reached Poissy. And although the bridge was indeed broken, Edward's engineers figured they could rebuild it. Philip had heard the news and sent men to stop the work, and a French force arrived at the bank. But the English engineers by that stage had managed to put a 60-foot tree across the gap. Bohun and two dozen soldiers rushed across and held off the French attack until more help could arrive and by the 14th of August it was too late. Edward and his army were over the river. 
and meanwhile in the north Hastings and the Flemish had burned their way south and were outside the walls of a town called Bethune. Paris was in ferment, but instead of advancing towards Paris, Edward bolted for the north. Philip this time reacted decisively. The job now was to stop Edward crossing the River Somme and meeting up with the Flemish army. Philip already had men on the Somme and he sent orders north to close the crossings and then he force-marched his army 25 miles a day northwards to the town of Abbeville, the site of the main crossing of the Somme. Edward, meanwhile, was feeling the pinch. The countryside ahead of him had been emptied of food by the French. He was unable to stop his men plundering and trying to capture nobles for ransom, all of which slowed them down. His baggage train slowed him down as well. The long and short was that his men were going hungry and Philip had overtaken him. So on the 20th of August, 25 miles south of the Somme, they met the advance elements of the French army under John of Bohemia. Around them the local inhabitants formed bands and began to pick off isolated English foragers. When he reached the Somme on the 21st of August, Edward sent out scouts who told him that all the crossings of the Somme were broken or in French hands. On the 22nd, the English tried to force crossings at Pont-Rémy, Longpré, Fontaine-sur-Somme and the village of Long, and every time they were beaten off with heavy losses. So now again the English army was beginning to suffer and was completely out of bread. On the 23rd, Philip had moved close to Edward and Edward could have had his battle if he'd wanted it, but now he didn't want it. He hurried west. He was now in real danger of being trapped between a superior French army, the Somme and the sea. And then on the evening of the 24th of August, a man was brought to the English camp. He seems to have been a Yorkshireman living in the district. There was one more ford, he said, a place called Blanche Tac, because it was marked by a white stone. The ford was tidal, it could only be crossed at low tide. But Edward was now drinking at the last chance saloon, and by midnight the army was woken and had picked their ways across the marches that lay south of the river to arrive at the ford. But when they arrived, they saw to their dismay that the French were once again ahead of them, with an army of 500 men-at-arms and 3,000 infantry. And to add to the pain, the tide was up, so they had to wait, watching each other. At eight in the morning, the water was low enough, and William Bohoon led the attack, and the French received further notice of the effectiveness of English archers. 100 archers stood in the river, firing a stream of arrows at the defenders, while a 100 men-at-arms ran across the ford. The hail of arrows was so effective that Bahoon was again able to establish a beachhead on the further side of the river, and from there, as more English arrived, the French were slowly pushed back until they broke and fled, and an hour and a half later Edward was across the Somme. Behind him, Philip and the main French army arrived, only to look with impotent rage at the backs of the English army across the rising tide, which now made the ford impassable. That, however, was the end of the race. Because the news that greeted Edward once he was across was that the Flemish were no longer in the field. Their attack had foundered against the walls of Bethune and they'd retreated and dispersed. So Edward now had a choice. He could use the time he'd gained to run for Flanders and safety or he could use the time to find the right battlefield and risk it on a gambler's throw, no matter what the odds. After all, poor though the odds were, they weren't going to get any better. 
The Duke of Normandy's army had not yet arrived from Aiguillon. So Edward marched north through the forest of Cressy and took up a position beyond the village. Philip, meanwhile, had returned to Abbeville, and on the 26th of August he crossed the river and set off after Edward. After several hours marching, Philip's advance guard found the English drawn up in battle order at Cressy, and the French king went into conference. There were two schools of thought. One of them said, Look, king, if I may call you king, your army is strung out over ten miles. Some troops haven't even left Abbeville yet. It's getting late, and your men are tired to look camp for the night, get into your gym jams, chill, relax, get yourself a good night's kip, and then rip Edward's heart out tomorrow. The other was more like, look, king, if I may call you king. Frankly, it's time to start delivering, right? This bloke has trampled all over French pride for long enough. You sat and watched him in Flanders. His captains have made a monkey out of you in Brittany and Gascony. He's English, we're French. Time to squash the bug. And so now all that pressure began to pay off. On the approach to Cressy, the roads had been lined with Frenchmen shouting, Kill! Kill! Philip's reputation couldn't bear a stalemate any more than it could bear a defeat. And what happened if Edward legged it in the night? Whatever he thought was the best thing to do, Philip felt under enormous pressure to attack, and so he did. Not that this was necessarily a disastrous decision. Philip's army would have been in the region of 25,000 men, and many of these were high quality, 12,000 men-at-arms and 6,000 Genoese crossbowmen. Edward, on the other hand, would have had 10,000 men top whack, and of those, only 3,000 would have been men-at-arms. Philip arranged his army in three battles, one behind the other. At the front were the Genoese crossbowmen supported by John of Bohemia and about 300 cavalry. And at this point, let me mention that there is a second animated map on the website. This time of the battle itself, your cup runneth over, so much so that you're going to have to start mopping. In the second battle was the elite of French chivalry, the mounted knights commanded by the Count of Alençon, Philip's younger brother. And the third was the rest of the cavalry commanded by the king himself. And then there's the mass of levies who are strung out on the road to Abbeville, joining the battle all the time, going into the wings as they arrive during the afternoon. One of the problems relating to the Battle of Cressy is the level of confusion amongst the chroniclers, and you'll therefore find many versions amongst modern historians. Jonathan Sumption's version gives the greatest feeling of order in the French camps, while other versions have the French essentially attacking piecemeal and in chaos. But hey, you pays your money and takes your choice. So Edward, meanwhile, had set up his forces nicely on the previous day. He'd deployed them in person, walking around the camp, laughing with his men, making them feel at ease. Edward was a fervent devotee of the Roman military writer, Vergetius, as indeed many were. It was the standard military medieval text. Edward consistently showed, had already showed in 3039, that he understood the importance of Vegetius's phrase, the nature of ground is often of more consequence than courage. With his smaller army, Edward needed to make sure that he wasn't outflanked. So on his right flank was the village of Cressy, and on his left, the village of Wadicor. His standard was placed on the top of a hill, 
and his army was stretched out across the hillside. The men-at-arms dismounted in the English fashion, with shallow pits dug in front. There's much debate about the ways in which the archers were deployed, but probably 4,000 archers were deployed on the flanks. The carts that had been dragged over 300 miles over awful roads now came into their own in a military sense. Some were used to create a lager around the archers on the flank. Some were used to create a park in the rear to protect the baggage, and some of them carried small cannon, which were deployed with the archers. At some point in the future, we'll clearly have to talk about military technology, but the presence of cannon on the battlefield of Cressy is well documented. These were ribolds, a very primitive cluster of barrels, bound together and mounted on small carts, firing bolts. They were very slow to load. Foissard relates that they probably fired two or three times during the battle. Their impact may well have been more about noise than death, but it was a start. The English centre line was divided into the traditional three battles. On the left, in theory, the Prince of Wales was in command. In practice, it was probably Warwick and a collection of seasoned warriors. Commanding the second battle was Bahoon, supported by the Earl of Arundel and in reserve was the king himself, with 2,000 archers and 800 men-at-arms. As the French appeared on the battlefield, Edward unfurled his banner, a dragon painted with his coat of arms, the antidote to the French oriflamme. He jumped on a palfrey and rode about among his men, giving his pre-dinner speech. They would win glory and honour, reclaim their rights, never again would the French be able to hold them in contempt, and according to John Lebel, making even cowards into heroes. At last, the French began to appear. The oriflamme was unfurled, the order for no quarter, so the French had set the tone. And then, as luck would have it, the heavens opened and gave the Genoese crossbow strings a good soaking, affecting their range. Nonetheless, the Genoese came forward. They shouted war cries to scare the English as they came, and then fired, falling short. Their second line came forward, shouted again at the English, and fired again short. And finally, the Genoese came into range, and the English archers and cannon opened up. Your English archer could shoot somewhere between six and ten arrows a minute. So let's assume a reasonably low rate for the sake of accuracy, and 4,000 archers, so those poor old Genoese were hit by 25,000 arrows a minute they were duly ripped to shreds, and they started to run for safety. Very few of the French nobility would have seen the impact of massed archers before. They simply didn't understand what was happening. So they assumed the Genoese were cowards, or even worse, traitors. In fury, the Count of Alençon spurred his men forward, hacking at the fleeing Genoese with their swords. And from the back, Philip himself shouted, Kill those scoundrel! Kill them all! And then en masse, Alençon's French chivalry charged. We all know what happens, but reflect for a while on how this must have looked to the English. Even the most confident must have had the odd collywobble at the sight of the massed ranks of the finest heavily armed cavalry in Europe shining in their plate armour, in line with the very latest word in Parisian fashion, trotting sturdily towards them on huge war destriers. The what happens next is that the attack met a hail of arrows and fell into a carnage of screaming, 
dying horses and men trapped by the weight of their armour. But give the flower of European chivalry its due. They reformed, and they came on again and again, wave after wave despite the carnage, with appalling courage. Between waves, the English archers would dash out from their positions and retrieve as many arrows as they could find, with Welsh spearmen behind them knifing helpless victims and rushing back to the safety of the line of men-at-arms as the next French charge reappeared. And despite the hail of arrows, the French men-at-arms did indeed begin to reach the English line and engage with the English men-at-arms. And gradually the pressure of all those extra numbers grew, in particular around the Prince of Wales. The Black Prince stood out by his size and fought like a lion, crying, St George! And in the words of the chronicler, ran through horses, cut down their riders, crushed their helmets, split their lances, all the time shouting encouragement at his troops. But the pressure grew intense, so much so that at one point he was forced to his knees. The Earls of Northampton and Arundel at one point made a charge into the French line from the side to relieve the pressure, but still the pressure grew. According to Foissart, St Thomas of Norwich then arrived in front of Edward from the Earl of Warwick. Here's a little tiny playette, with me as the messenger and Henry Crowther as King Edward. Sire, the Earls of Warwick and Oxford, who are with the Prince, are meeting a very fierce attack by the French. So they ask you to bring your divisions to their support, because if the attack grows any heavier, they fear it will be about as much as your son can deal with. Is my son dead, or stunned, or so seriously wounded he cannot go on fighting? No, thank God, but he's very hard-pressed, and needs your help badly. Sir Thomas, go back to him and those who have sent you, and tell them not to send for me again today, so long as my son is alive. Give them my commands to let my son win his spurs, for if God has so ordained it, I wish the day to be his and the honour to go to him and those in whose charge I have placed him. It's a great example from the Foissard Good Parenting Guide. As darkness began to fall, the French attacks began to falter. Seeing this, the blind king of Bohemia called for his bravest knights, and ordered them to lead him into battle at the place nearest to Edward III. The knights tied the bridles of their horses together, and shouted their war cry, Prague, and charged to their deaths and into the poetry of chivalry. At this point, after maybe as many as 15 charges, it was clear that the French attacks were faltering. Huge masses of infantry milled about on the flanks, as their attacks failed. It was time to take control. From behind the English line, horses were brought forward and the English men-at-arms mounted up and charged, led by Northampton, Warwick, Dagworth et al. The French infantry turned and ran. Philip's bodyguard rallied around him and for a while the battle was close to catching him. His standard bearer was killed beside him, two horses killed beneath him and he was hit in the face by an arrow. But eventually John of Hainault dragged him away and he fled with the rest of his army. The Battle of Cressy, as a competitive event, was over. It's a good story, isn't it? I've rattled on far too long, though, so I think that's enough for one week. Next week, we'll talk about the aftermath of the battle and cover the rest of the Annus Mirabilis, since there is indeed more Annus and more Mirabilis to come. In the meantime, good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>